Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 34 called Julian's Destiny. In the last episode, we left Julian on the banks of the river Euphrates just about to march into Persia with his army of 60,000 men and a fleet of 1,250 ships. He'd sent another army of 30,000 under Procopius's leadership towards the Tigris in Armenia with the intention of linking up with the Armenian king Arshak II as a decoy to keep Shapur II with the main Persian army engaged in Armenia while he struck at Tessaphon, the Persian capital, which was in the south and close to where both the Euphrates and Tigris converge. Typical of Julian, it was a bold plan. Julian liked surprises and taking risks, and this was the biggest risk he'd taken since he revolted against Constantius and had, to be honest, been very fortunate, I think, that Constantius had unexpectedly died of natural causes, thereby avoiding what would otherwise probably have been a very costly Roman civil war. So I think it's worth noting at this point that Julian's success so far was largely due to a healthy dose of luck, and we all know that you can't rely on luck. Now, the army was so large that it spread for 10 miles along the Euphrates, and after it left the last Roman outpost on the river, the frontier city of Circassium, its initial advance into Persia was reasonably successful. The first Persian city they encountered was called Anatha, which surrendered without a fight, and the garrison commander even joined the Roman army. They also liberated a prisoner of war who was nearly a hundred years old and had been captured when he'd fought for Diocletian's co-emperor Maximian back in the third century. Apparently, the old soldier was overjoyed and told Julian that he'd always known he would eventually be freed. Yet, although Shapo II himself wasn't in the area, The Persians were by now aware of Julian's offensive along the Euphrates and Shapur sent the Surena, his deputy and the head of the Sasanian army, to command the forces opposing Julian. Growing numbers of Persian troops harried the Romans as they marched down the Euphrates with the Persian pretender to the throne, Hormizd, at one point nearly being captured while out on reconnaissance. You'll remember from the last episode that Hormizd was Julian's tame Persian, Shapur's brother and the pretender to the Sasanian throne. Finally, in late April, the Romans reached Porisabora, the first well-defended Persian city. This was Julian's first test, since it had a strong garrison of regular Persian troops, maybe some two and a half thousand strong. Using their powerful bows, the defenders took a heavy toll of the attacking legionaries, even when they used their famous tortoise formations. Ammianus Marcellinus recounts that Julian joined one such formation in an attack on a gate, risking his life. When the bombardment of arrows and stones from the Persians was too much, Julian and his legionaries retreated with few casualties. Ammianus records that Julian later told him he was copying what he read Scipio did when attacking Carthage. Although Julian's bravery was beyond reproach, there was a recklessness in risking his own life that set an ominous precedent for the future. 
However, Julian was also fascinated by siege warfare and had even written a book on the different types of siege engines. Accordingly, he ordered the construction of a gigantic siege tower armed with catapults and battering rams, which Ammianus calls a helopolis or city taker. When the city's outer walls had finally been breached by battering rams, this monster was dragged through the streets to the citadel where the Persian garrison was making a last stand. Confronted with such a machine that was actually taller than the citadel walls, and knowing that they were incapable of resisting it, the defenders lined the walls, lifting their arms in the air in surrender. Their commander was lowered on a rope to negotiate with Hormizd and Julian, who spared their lives. It was a victory, but fiercely fought for, and offered no indication that this would be an easy campaign. This view was reinforced the next day by a Persian attack led by the Serena on three Roman cavalry squadrons. A Roman standard was captured and Julian personally had to lead a relief force to chase the Persians off. Julian was so discouraged by the poor Roman performance versus the strengthening Persian one that he punished the cavalry squadrons by putting to death ten of their company. This was unusually severe. Perhaps to compensate for it, the same day he called the entire army together and promised to pay each man a hundred pieces of silver in additional pay, the type of donative that had become customary to offer the army. This was actually less than what he'd promised the Gallic army when they proclaimed him Augustus in Paris in 360. The soldiers voiced their disappointment, upon which Julian made a speech saying that if they defeated the Persians, the plunder would be spectacular, and the state would also be better placed to reward them than if it paid Rome's enemies for peace, as had become normal practice under his predecessors. This seems to have motivated the soldiers sufficiently for the army to continue its march down the Euphrates to the next Persian city, called Myozamalcha, on about the 8th of May. Again, this was a powerful stronghold, sited on a rocky outcrop, with tall walls and well-garrisoned. And yet again, showing both his bravery and recklessness, Julian took a small reconnaissance unit to scout out the city's defences. He was nearly killed when ten Persians leapt out from behind a concealed postern gate. Ammianus says that the emperor actually killed one of the Persians with his sword and the rest were driven off. Although the soldiers were pleased to hear of Julian's bravery in this engagement, this didn't help them to take the city. The heavily armed Persian defenders poured arrows and stones down on the attacking legionaries. The midday temperatures reached 40 degrees centigrade. The Romans were becoming desperate. Julian was also worried about the proximity of Shapur with the main Persian army. He'd had no news from Procopius either. So using his extensive knowledge of siege operations, he put together a group of sappers to undermine the walls. To hide the noise they made, he organised constant attacks to distract the defenders' attention. His strategy worked, and the Roman sappers, led by a capable tribune called Dagalifus, opened the mine at night, just behind the walls, and were able to burst through, slaughtering the Persian guards who were singing songs to keep them awake. 
Within minutes, the Romans opened the gates and legionaries streamed in, killing the townspeople and soldiers alike. What followed was carnage. Ammianus says that many of the defenders threw themselves to their deaths from the walls. There was also plenty of booty to delight the soldiers' greed. Julian made a point of telling the troops that the plunder was all theirs and he would keep for himself, in recognition of this victory, only three gold coins, as well as sparing the life of a dumb boy whose skill in sign language impressed him. The campaign was now reaching a critical point. Tessiphon was only a few days' march away. Julian wanted to get there before Shapur. It was then that he implemented a potential masterstroke, which was to identify the canal that the Emperor Trajan had dug 250 years before to link the Euphrates and the Tigris. The Persians had filled it in to prevent it from being used, and instead used a canal below Tessiphon to link the two rivers, where it would be difficult for an enemy fleet to sail upstream to attack the city. The Romans cleared the canal and the dams restraining the water were broken. Ammianus described a great head of water pouring through the canal after which followed the Roman fleet. In horror, the inhabitants of Tessiphon looked out from their city walls to see the Tigris filled with Roman ships. Meanwhile, the army marched beside the canal towards the city. The soldiers found themselves in the green and well-watered hinterland to Tessiphon. They reached the Persian king's zoological garden, replete with lions, boars and exotic animals, which unfortunately the Romans butchered with bloodthirsty delight. But Persian resistance was stiffening as they approached Tessiphon. A fort in front of the city put up a particularly daunting resistance, first nearly killing Julian himself when he yet again recklessly reconnoitred it. His armour-bearer was wounded by a hail of arrows sent in their direction, and Julian was only just able to scramble away unscathed. Then a night's attack on the fort was unexpectedly met by the defenders opening the gates and sallying out. In the ensuing fight a tribune was killed and in the nighttime confusion the Romans were pushed back. Julian was furious and subjected the fort to a ferocious attack on all sides, killing its defenders to the last man and leaving it a burning wreck. Julian's army was now in full sight of the Persian capital, but while the fleet encircled it, the army was on the wrong side of the river since Tessiphon was on the left bank of the Tigris while the army was on the right. A substantial Persian army led by the Serena was also ready to meet the Romans. Ammianus describes the gleaming plate mail of the Persian cavalry together with the terrifying elephants that the Sasanians regularly used in their larger army groupings, quote, like walking hills, end quote. And this was not even the main Persian army, which was still marching south with Shapur. Julian knew that he had to act quickly if he was to capture Tessiphon before Shapur reached it. So he devised one of the daring commando-type raids that he'd used so successfully against the Germans. At nightfall, he sent Count Victor, who Ammianus describes as a particularly daring commander, across the Tigris with five boats full of soldiers, quote, under fierce attack from firebombs and every 
every sort of combustible, end quote, Count Victor secured a bridgehead on the opposite bank of the Tigris. Julian then gave the order for a general amphibious assault and hundreds of Roman ships and soldiers rowed across the river. The operation was successful and the bulk of the Roman army took up position in front of Tessiphon and the Persian army. The scene was now set for the culmination of Julian's dream, the capture of Tessiphon. The day after the crossing, the 29th of May, the Romans attacked. The Roman infantry formed a solid mass and advanced, quote, in their gleaming crested helmets, slowly swinging their shields, end quote. Then there was a fierce melee in which Julian was galloping from side to side, encouraging his officers before the Persian ranks broke and fled. The Persians were at this time still cautious about fighting the Roman legionaries and found their disciplined ranks difficult to confront. And so it proved on this occasion. Ammianus says 2,500 Persian dead were found on the battlefield compared with only 70 Romans. This seems hard to believe, but there's no doubt that Julian had won a victory and there were celebrations in the Roman camp that night. But it proved to be a hollow victory. Ammianus says that when the Persians retreated, the Romans were in a good position to storm Tessiphon. However, it was Julian's daring commander, Count Victor, who rather surprisingly called the Romans back. He himself was wounded, hit in the shoulder by an arrow, and he feared that an assault on the city could end in disaster. But this proved to be a turning point, not just for this campaign, not just for Julian, but for the whole history of the Roman Empire. For never again would Rome command an army as powerful as Julian's. So what went wrong? Ammianus is our best reference since he was actually there. And he says that at a council of war held the day after Julian's victory, the majority of the Roman generals told him that a siege of Tessiphon would fail for two reasons. First, the city was impregnable. And second, Shapur was about to arrive. And the Roman army would be caught between the Serena in Tessiphon and Shapur's army. Ammianus goes on to say that while Julian accepted the council's decision not to attack Tessiphon, nevertheless he refused to agree to a retreat. Instead, he wanted to advance east into Persia, apparently with the aim of continuing the invasion and subjugation of the Sasanians. Ammianus says that he was misled by Persian deserters who told him that they could lead him to victory. Julian then made a critical strategic error. He burned the massive fleet that had transported the army down the Euphrates and across to the Tigris. He did this because he didn't want it to fall into the hands of the Persians and because it freed up 20,000 soldiers who had been manning the ships. But the moment it was discovered that the Persian deserters had tricked Julian into thinking there was an easy path into the Persian interior, orders were given to stop the burning of the fleet. But it was too late. The fleet disappeared in a fiery tumult, much to the army's disappointment, with only 12 ships left out of 1,250. Continuing with Ammianus's account, he goes on to say that Julian, nevertheless, continued with his plan to advance east into Persia. And initially this met with success. 
the Romans found themselves, quote, in a rich region which provided food in abundance, end quote. So perhaps Julian had been right after all. Alas, no, for the Persians quickly responded with a scorched earth policy that denied Julian's troops forage and water, Julian's eastern offensive ground to a halt. Julian resorted to asking the gods what to do by taking omens, which means inspecting the entrails of slaughtered animals. Ammianus says he did a lot of this, and it's interesting to note, he didn't seem to approve of it, although he was actually pagan, not Christian himself which makes an interesting reflection on how Christianity, which frowned on animal sacrifice, was starting to change ancient culture. The troops wanted to return home and were frustrated that the ships had been burned, although Julian pointed out that it would have been impossible to sail them upstream against the current anyway. The omens taken by Julian provided no clear guidance about what to do, so he decided to march north along the Tigris to meet up with Procopius and Arshak, whose whereabouts was still a mystery. No sooner had this decision been taken than a great cloud of dust was seen in the distance. Some optimistically thought this was Procopius's army, but it turned out to be Shapur's. However, the Romans weren't downhearted, just the opposite. Ammianus describes how the troops relished the prospect of fighting the Persians. The first skirmishing between the two armies went in favour of the Romans, and Ammianus says, quote, the enemy squadron scattered after suffering a serious reverse, end quote. But the Persians continued to harry the Romans with mixed fortunes. A Persian satrap, that is a senior Persian general, was killed, and Julian rewarded the soldier who'd killed him lavishly. But a Roman cavalry unit, the Tertiaci, were accused of cowardice by the legionaries and punished severely by Julian. Finally, a few miles further up the Tigris, the full Persian army gave battle to the Romans. Ammianus describes the endless ranks of heavily armoured Persian horsemen, the ferocity of the Persian archers and the terrifying elephants. But when battle was joined, the legionaries again proved their worth, and the Persians were the first to leave the field after suffering much heavier casualties than the Romans, or at least that's what Ammianus says. It was a Roman victory, but far from decisive. The next day, Julian's army continued its march north, hoping to meet up with Procopius. The Persians were now afraid to give battle, but constantly harried the retreating army. At one point, Persian cavalry attacked the rearguard, and Julian, who always wanted to be in the midst of battle, rushed to organise the Roman resistance. However, in his eagerness, he forgot to put on a breastplate. The Persians then switched their attack to the advance guard, so Julian, always a whirlwind of activity, galloped there. But then another Persian cavalry unit attacked the Roman centre with elephants. Julian rushed to deal with that and led a Roman counterattack, which put the Persians and even the elephants to flight. But then disaster struck. He got caught up with a mass of fleeing Persians, and just as his bodyguard was trying to catch up with him, a cavalryman threw a spear which caught him in the side and lodged in the lower part of his liver. When he pulled it out, he cut his fingers on the blade. Then he fell from his horse and was carried back to camp. 
While a battle raged outside, which the Romans again won, Julian lay in his tent being tended to by his doctors. At first he and they thought his wound wasn't fatal, and he issued instructions to tell his officers he would soon be well. But it quickly became evident this wasn't the case. As he lost more blood, he became weaker until realising that he was at death's door. Ammianus says he discussed philosophy, just as Socrates had done before his death, and then died at the age of 32, having been emperor for just under two years. That at least is the record which Ammianus has left us, and it deserves considerable serious attention because, of course, he was the only person who was actually there to leave an account. But to be honest, his history raises more questions than answers. So let's go right back to the decision not to lay siege to Tessaphon. Why did Julian not know that Tessaphon was too strongly fortified to be besieged? Julian had made its capture his principal objective, but he gave up just when he defeated the Persian army in front of its walls with light losses himself. Did he really underestimate the strength of its defences? Perhaps it was true that he foresaw a long and difficult siege and he didn't want to be caught between it and Shapur's army, which was heading rapidly in his direction. But historians have suggested there could have been other reasons as well. For example, the land around Tessaphon was waterlogged at this time because the Persians had purposefully opened all the floodgates from both the Euphrates and Tigris in order to make it more difficult for the Romans to advance. This meant an increased risk of malaria. Indeed, Ammiana says that storms of insects were plaguing the Roman army outside Tessaphon, and perhaps Julian felt a prolonged siege would result in a malarial outbreak that crippled the Roman army. Another possible reason is that the Romans' Persian pretender to the throne, Hormizd, had spies in Tessaphon who'd promised to open the city gates, only to be discovered and eliminated. Ammiana certainly claims Julian was tricked by Persian deserters into thinking he could invade Persia, although he doesn't actually say what they promised him other than indicating there was fertile countryside in the east which would feed the army. The non-appearance of Procopius's army also remains a complete enigma. There's no record of any significant engagements fought between it and Shapur. We can only assume that either the Persians slowed down its advance south, that Procopius was incompetent or downright treacherous. Incompetence, I think, is the most likely reason. But the biggest controversy of all exists over the identity of Julian's killer. This is because a tradition developed later among Christian chroniclers to celebrate Julian's death as due to a Christian Roman soldier. But there's absolutely no evidence for this. Its origin lies with the fact that no Persian ever claimed responsibility for Julian's death. But this is probably because whoever did it was themselves killed shortly afterwards. Or indeed, maybe Julian's assailant didn't know that he'd mortally wounded the Roman emperor. Finally, it's worth mentioning that rather surprisingly, Julian didn't nominate a successor on his deathbed. Interestingly, one historian has suggested that this was because he actually took longer to die than just the single day recorded by Ammianus. His theory is that a wound to the liver would have caused infection, which probably took three days at least to kill him, during which time he may have believed he would live, thereby not needing to nominate a successor. In conclusion, it's unlikely we'll ever 
have satisfactory answers to these intriguing questions. We can, of course, also engage in a host of counterfactual speculation. For example, what would have happened had Julian lived? Would paganism have been restored? Would Christianity have been crushed? Would the fall of the Roman Empire have been postponed or put off altogether? All sorts of historians, writers and thinkers from Voltaire to Gore Vidal have been inspired by Julian and offered their thoughts about what might have happened had he lived. But there's only one thing we know for certain. Julian's plan to revive the classical Roman Empire was a complete failure. And after his death, the empire began its fall. And the rapidity of that fall would have shocked Julian and all the Romans of his age. For only 47 years after his death, the city of Rome itself would be sacked by the Goths. Julian's death marked the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll continue with the story of what happened after Julian's death. See you next time. 